This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. This week, you lucky listeners get two episodes for the price of one. Unusually for the podcast, we recorded two episodes back-to-back in just two days. For this reason, they are kin, intimately connected, and shall go forth into the world as such. Each shares the same intro, so whichever one you're listening to first, don't worry, I'm going to keep this one short. Both conversations were less structured than usual. I did have questions, but allowed both conversations more space to evolve and flow, and there may even be a little bit of rambling on both sides from time to time, but we hope never enough to bore. We are exploring new creative spaces after all. Our two guests are at opposite ends of the career spectrum. Zach Walsh is finishing up a PhD program, while Robert Foreman is a retired professor of religious studies. Foreman is an atypical guest for the podcast. Much of our work has been critical of Western spirituality, explorative of more philosophically leaning themes, and aimed towards constructing divergent ways of imagining Buddhism, spirituality, contemplation, and notions of path, tradition, and outcomes. Robert spent much of his career exploring themes that have come up in our podcast episodes, uniting his spiritual bent with academic writing on topics, including mysticism, non-duality, pure consciousness, and even ending up in a debate with Stephen T. Katz on whether mystical experience is socially constructed or an innate universal capacity. Robert is a long-term practitioner of TM, that's Transcendental Meditation, and we start off our discussion by talking about this controversial practice. We get into a range of topics covering his interests and non-academic writings, including his recent Enlightenment Ain't What Is Cracked Up To Be. I do my best to lead the conversation towards the more academic topics, but I am only partially successful. I hope that the attempts to do so make for an interesting conversation all the same, and it must be said that Robert is game throughout our chat. My conversation with Zach was quite different, but not necessarily devoid of the personal or traces of mystical inquiry, although perhaps he or I would use a slightly different language to refer to such. Zach is currently working in the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, in Germany, exploring the relationship between contemplative practices and ecology. He has written some great work that resonates with many of my own concerns, insightful critiques of mindfulness and meditation culture, using a variety of lenses that deserve wider attention, 
and has more recently developed what he calls the contemplative commons, which becomes a central topic of our discussion. We also look at the interplay of activism and contemplative practices, future directions for the development of spirituality firmly grounded in our imminent world, metamodernism, transcendence, and we even get into discussing China, and there's a film reference to boot. Enjoy this tandem cycle through different lives and minds, as the Imperfect Buddha podcast continues its journey onwards through destinations unknown. Music for these episodes is provided by the Bristol-based artist 100 Strong, this time in a collaboration with Callie Phoenix, who's a great singer from Scotland. Check out their work at the usual locations, including her most recent album, Voices. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Today I'm speaking to Mr. Robert Foreman. Robert, I'm going to start off with a, a slightly cheeky question. Are you mates with David Lynch at all? <laughs> Am I mates? Yes. I met David. I, uh, I think you're asking this because we both do TM. That's right. That's um, right. I, I knew David many, many years ago. I was involved with the TM movement quite actively in the the late 60s, early 70s. I met David Lynch there a few times. Uh, that was the last time I saw the guy. Uh, except I did go to one of his lectures out in L.A. about 10, 15 years ago when he had just started funding the thing. But no, I'm not a mate with David Lynch. Okay. Yeah, it is interesting to see that uh, TM or Transcendental Meditation is still attracting quite a few celebrities, which I didn't expect it would after all these years. Uh, the English comedian Russell Brand is a practitioner, apparently. I don't know if you're aware of him. Mm -hmm. No. Oh, okay. He's, he's really famous, very popular with the ladies as well, apparently. And he's dived right in. Now, I do understand that TM has been an important practice for you in the past. Is it still your primary meditation practice? It's my primary meditation practice. It is not all of my practice, but it is my primary meditation tool. Okay. Yes. Um, in fact, I, I find that TM is, is an interesting practice. Um, as you probably know, I used to be uh, the director of the Forge Institute, which brought together spiritual teachers and leaders from all the different paths that we could find. And um, at some point, we did a rather informal survey of, you know, how many people here. Um, this was at a national conference, and we did a survey of how many people here um, have a meditation practice, and all the hands shut up. And then we said, how many people here meditate every day? And only a small smattering of the hands that went up, and it was all the TMers, and virtually only the TMers. And I think that the practice of TM, uh, one reason is that it really is very easy to do, uh, and sleep counts as, as part of your meditation. So um, it is a very uh, easy practice to fit in your life. And so I fit it in my life. I've been doing it now. This is my 49th year of daily meditation, and um, it, it, I will do it until the day I die, no question about it. It's just part of my life. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously there are benefits from almost any type of meditation practice but there's also been a little bit of critique of transcendental meditation in the past and some folks have compared it to the mindfulness style usage of, of mindfulness practice today there are a couple of characteristics i wonder what you think about them one of them is this idea of purity that i believe is quite strong in the tm 
thinking. Is, is that true? Purity is interesting. I think what you're thinking of is the purity of the teaching. That's part of it, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I see. Okay. Uh, yes. Maharishi, uh, Mahesh Yogi, who brought it out or who taught it, um, said that it is important that the teaching is done correctly. And what he meant by that is it's very easy to, to – let me back up a notch. Uh, the, the key of TM, the key of meditation as Marshi taught it, is effortlessness. And um, it is so easy to start exerting effort in TM, in meditation. I mean, I've I've practiced uh, some forms of Buddhism, and it, it all feels it often feels like you're really kind of working to hold your focus, and that takes effort. Whereas the TM strategy is categorically different, almost exactly opposite, and the strategy is be as effortless as is possible, and the reason for that is that the strategy of TM towards enlightenment is different than the strategy of Buddhism. Or of uh, of um, uh, uh, mindful prayer that they do in Christianity now with Thomas Keating's work. Um, the strategy of TM is that if you allow the mind to follow its own natural instinct, it will naturally fall into what Marshi calls uh, pure consciousness, or what Buddhism, I think, calls Buddha mind, it will naturally fall back into that, so, as sort of as if falling down into one's own nature. And so that from the very first meditation, people find that they are getting extremely quiet inside. Now, the strategy, as I've understood it, of Buddhism is that you pay careful attention to what's going on in your mind. You notice thoughts. You might label thoughts, thought, 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 or you might label thoughts, oh, I'm having a thought about blah, blah, blah. I'm having a feeling. Whereas the TM strategy is, is opposite of that. If you have a thought, your, your instructions are you just let the thought go, and then you come back to the mantra, which is, which is um, as you know, is a, is a sound, a meaningless sound. Um, and then you sort of naturally fall into this very open place. And as a result, I think Buddhism does end up having a very powerful effect on people. But the effect on people of TM meditation is also very powerful, but opposite in a certain way. You, you go beneath thoughts, you go beneath feelings into this very open place. And the openness, I think, is part of the characteristic of what enlightenment is about. Um, now, what Maharishi means when he says purity is that it's easy to get the instructions wrong. I know a lot of people that have tried to teach TM, um, some of my students, I might add, um, who really never learned how to do it, uh, never learned how to teach it. And so as a result, the people that learn have this sense that they got to work to hold on to the mantra, work to hold on to their mind in some way. And so it's a very easy thing to mess up. So Marsha's instructions are keep the teaching accurate, Te keep the teaching so that people really do learn how to be effortless. And the word he uses for that is purity. Keep the teaching pure. He does not mean, you know, like you have to wash a lot or you have to say certain prayers before you meditate or whatnot. Rather, it's that the teaching should be pure. Um, but in terms of what you do as a daily practitioner, the word purity doesn't ent enter into it. You simply do the technique as, as it's you know as it's taught, and it's easy. Now you use the word mic. Uh, what would you phrase? Mic mindfulness. Mic mindfulness. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you and I, uh, right before we got online, we're talking a little about how easy it is to for anybody that learns Buddhism or anybody that learns TM to think, oh, now I understand. Now I now I can teach it. And so you see Buddhism and probably TM offered in you know virtually every other gymnasium and and all over the street. I mean, often on the streets. Um, and it's easy to teach it incorrectly because the cost of entry to teaching Buddhism or TM is very low. You know, people think, oh, I've learned meditation. Now I can teach it. Um, whereas for somebody to teach it well takes a fair amount of training, takes a fair amount of time, uh, takes a lot of practice. Um, and so to learn TM, to learn to be a TM teacher, it takes at least, it, well, back in my day, it took at least three months of a long meditation retreat. It took me nine months to learn how to be a teacher of meditation. Um, and so that that whole process is is very um, carefully drawn out and carefully done and takes a lot of time. So in that sense, Marshy's instructions are, and I really respect this about him, his instructions are, if you're going to teach this stuff, teach it right, because otherwise you're doing a disservice to your people. I have to ask one other thing as well, which is about the the famous yogic flying now, I was just wondering if you've ever been involved in any of that. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I've done it. I, I have that practice. When I go off on long retreats, I do it, and I take a retreat pretty much every year. Um, and do I do the yoga flying practice? Yes, there's a whole series of yoga practices. Um, I have um, – all I can say is it's something that I, I actually really enjoy to do. The inner experience is very, very pleasing. Um, I feel a very quick openness. That is to say, when I'm doing the flying technique per se, I feel this sort of uh, energy and an openness. My body tends to vibrate a little bit or it tends to move around some. Uh, I have never, ever heard of anyone actually floating up, which is supposed to happen. I've never heard of anybody being able to, quote, pass through the sky at will, as Patanjali has it. Um, and yet the practices themselves are, are very satisfying. And there's about yoga flying is the one that, that everybody, you know, the, the people that don't do this stuff um, know about. But the practice of yoga flying comes um, towards the end of a series of, oh, geez, probably 25 different practices, um, some of which are to develop um, physical strength, um, to be able to be with a uh, to be able to be happy at will, um, to be able to be uh, compassionate at will, to be able to know things about people, um, a, a knowledge and also knowledge of the of the future. And I must say, these things are quite interesting to do. I have no idea um, if if what you cognize during these things um, has much truth to it. I do know that I have had certain experiences that I do think of as have been very helpful to me to understand people, to understand other people, um, to know a little about the future. Um, so all I can say is that I am a very curious agnostic about, about these practices. And uh, the practice of flying, the flying technique, is actually extremely satisfying, extremely fun to do. Fun is a funny word, but it's 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 a practice that is very satisfying to do. Uh, and yet, to advertise it as flying is um, uh, at best um, misleading advertising, and at worst, is false advertising. Um, but as I say, Matthew, that I, I think it's I think it's a very satisfying practice to do, and I think it's probably helped my 
help my spiritual growth in the long run um, in ways that uh, it's hard for me to measure. So, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting technique. Yes, I do it. And no, it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a funny one. I was thinking about, as you were saying then, that um, there are obviously different ways of looking at these these types of practices. And it's interesting, at least for me, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know what it's like for you to think about them from a, a range of different perspectives and see how uh, looking at them from those perspectives can be informative to our own subjective experience, both in the practice and in how we evaluate it afterwards. And this um, this mindfulness stuff, I mean, one of, one of the, the features of it that's problematic, well, the first thing I should say is this, I, I think a lot of people have very, very good intentions, but they don't always necessarily have the maturity or the wherewithal to always understand the consequences of certain choices that are made. I think that's accurate. That, that when I've met people that are wanting to teach meditation, generally it's done with a with a good intention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think we're also, uh, in a way, whether we wish to be or not, willing or unwilling participants in in sort of global forces that are at play. The mindfulness movement, rather like the TM movement, is always going to, in a sense, get a balance between transmitting something of value and worth to people that can help them change their lives and also be successful at the game, you know, that's economically present. Maybe in the TM case, I don't know. I, I have no idea about this, whether Maharashi really believed that people could fly or not. But perhaps it was uh, at the time, you know, an appropriate advertising spin to, to attract people. Who knows? Because in those years, people were a bit more naive and they probably liked the idea of developing superpowers. Uh, that word superpowers is, is incredibly misleading. Um, but let, let's, let's notice this, that in, in the word superpower, you know, it sounds like you're, you're sort of trying to, or you're developing somebody that's, you know, like Superman, that, that is really, uh, able to fly through the sky and see through walls and 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 it's like that's the image that we all have when we think of superpowers but uh, as i've come to think about it and and here we're going to get into something i think quite interesting you and i as i've come to think about it i think that human beings um are, are fairly limited in in the way that we uh see and think and can understand the world. And I think that we can be, and this is probably why most people practice this, there's a sense in all of this, a sense in meditation, a sense in prayer, that there is something more, and that we can get in touch with that something more somehow. And there's a kind of hope that we can get in touch with it, and sometimes we can. And it's that being able to somehow get in touch with something that is more deeply connective than most of us have known, uh, that I think is possible in all of this. And so uh, to call it a superpower is kind of misleading, but to say, I I'm with William James, who said there's much more about consciousness than we know, that consciousness is probably like uh, with the colors that come out of a, uh, a prism, and that all we know is just one or two of those colors. And I think there's much more uh, that human beings are capable of than most of us know. It's not a superpower in the same sense, you know, that we don't get capes and we don't get, you know, a Batman costume. But it is different than most of us assume. And so in that sense, I think that, that 
Buddhism, and uh, I know that the uh, the cities, the the uh, so-called supernormal powers of TM, I think that, that these things are touching something for human beings that we don't, um, that we're not terribly aware of, and we don't have ready access to. I think so. It's, I, I think the TM is sort of is pointing in that direction. I'm an agnostic on how well it works. But I'm pretty well convinced that there is more to human capabilities than we tend to think and we know right from the start. I don't know. Am I, am I being too woo-woo here? <laughs> no, not really. I don't think you are. I think some of what you're saying brings up a challenge about – well, it brings up a couple of issues. But, but one is – do we reframe the claims of traditions when they talk about, okay, not superpowers, but these extraordinary abilities? Do we reframe them in a sort of psychological view, as somebody like Chogyam Trungpa might have done in the past? Or do we say, as you said, that in a sense, they're hinting at some potential that we hold? And I think at that point, I'm, I'm on board with you. And I think agnosticism is a certainly a healthy and very honest position to take towards a lot of this stuff. I think there's sometimes like the promise almost of these extra human capacity sometimes robs a practice or a tradition of its ability to get us in touch with the simple humanity of something like awakening or something of coming in touch with our own suffering, as the Buddhists might do, or coming to understand richer or stronger and more pervasive experiences of joy or love or compassion. And I think that sometimes, at least for me and perhaps my generation, I worry sometimes that the way these practices have been codified um, sometimes means that they're not attractive to folks who would really benefit from them, but maybe they don't think it's woo-woo, but they're kind of like, you know, that spiritual stuff, that's kind of wacky. I think people are just trying to get high and space out, and I don't want to do any of that. But I wonder if, you know, if, 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 if we couldn't, within our culture, um, find more effective means for talking about the grace, the beauty, the depth that you, you were hinting about in ways that are more human and less less spiritual in a sense. Yeah, I like it. I, I, I definitely understand what you're saying. Um, I, perhaps the first thing we can do, you and I, is, is, is not uh, to stop talking so much about supernormal powers, which is very confusing and not really part of the whole thing, not really the focus of the whole thing, and talk about human capacities like grace and like joy and and... I mean, I think one of the thing, one of the reasons that that we're talking is that um, I've written a fair amount about enlightenment and awakening. I think that's probably part of why you've invited me here. And enlightenment. That's where I want to head to next. Exactly. Yeah. Fine. So if enlighten, if we talk about enlightenment, I think, I think human beings have the capacity to be to 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 sense. A connection. Sometimes I think about this. I don't know if you talk about this on your show much, but sometimes I think about about this as kind of parallel to what's called the the zero point state or the quantum vacuum field. Uh, in that there's there's energy in the cosmos, and I think that we um, in enlightenment you sense. I don't know if it's the same stuff, but you sense something that looks parallel to that. You sense a kind of extensiveness in the world you sense a, an openness in the world you you sense a vast field of some sort which i in my most recent book called the vastness and i think that in enlightenment you kind of open into this into this spaciousness and i think we all get many people get a sense for 
this this openness, this this sense of being connected in some way. And I think that's more what people, when we practice meditation, um, that's more what we're after, that, that the sense of being wide open and undefended against the world. And that's something that I think is, is well worth pursuing and doesn't sound quite so weird and woo-woo. It's rather a sense of um, that human beings have more capacity to be open and connected, both with this extensive field, but also with one another. And if we talk about it in that way, perhaps that's uh, perhaps that's a little less off-putting to people of your generation. I think you're a wee bit younger than me, so um, I, yeah. I think that yeah. that's 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 I think what what this stuff is about. It's about becoming wide open. It's about becoming undefended. It's about becoming uh, deeper in oneself and able to connect more with other people and with, with the world at large. And in that sense, there's a kind of, there's a kind of calling of meditation. Can't we be more wide open? Can't we be more connected? Can't we be more loving? And I think in that sense, what meditation is after is, is what many, many people are after. There's a sense of beauty in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I believe, I think about your, the title of your last book, which is um, Enlightenment's not all it's cracked up to be. Um, no, no, no. Enlightenment. <laughs> Enlightenment ain't all it's cracked up to be. Go ahead. Ah, there yeah. we go. I almost <laughs> got it. Damn it. <laughs> With that, are you are you claiming this this uh, thing called enlightenment? And you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I've I've always found that a funny word and a slightly problematic word. Me too. Um, yeah. So, uh, why don't we talk about the word just for a moment, and then we'll talk about your experience of this. We've had a guest on in the past called Daniel Ingram. He's a Buddhist. Uh, he's a Generation Xer like myself. Uh, he claimed enlightenment, and we talked a little bit about how he defines that. Mm-hmm. Um, another word that's quite popular is awakening, and I think mm-hmm. that's perhaps a little bit more useful, but it's still mm-hmm. problematic in its own way. Have you got any other words you might like to use instead of enlightenment? Because it could mean so many things, right? Uh, sure, there's all kinds of words. Uh, there's all kinds of words for it, but let's. I want to distinguish between two kinds of uh, notions of this, as opposed to the words. I want to. I want to help help your listeners here. Um, the different ways to conceive of this. Um, The way I used to think of it is that enlightenment means that in some sense you become perfect or that in some sense you are constantly aware of all of your emotions and all of your emotional life and don't get caught by any emotional storm and drongs and don't get caught up in your own craziness. And, and that's, that's a view of what enlightenment is. Um, it's not what I think of as enlightenment or what I've come to think of as enlightenment. Um, rather, I think that what happens to some people and actually more people than we know, um, there's a fellow named uh, uh, Jeffrey Martin who's been doing a fair amount of research on people who have had this kind of experience. And he's found in America in the first just a couple of years of doing interviews, he's found 1,200 people. Um, that have had uh, something like this. I think what happens, and the, what we call moksha, what we call enlightenment, um, is that there's a kind of shifting that takes place within the human uh, physiology, within the human brain mostly. And the shifting goes from 
um, a mind that is uh, what Buddhism calls a monkey mind, where you're constantly sort of the mind is chattering about this, that, and the other thing. There's a kind of internal ADD where you're thinking about this and you're also hearing a, a snatch of song and you're hearing about you're, – you're saying to yourself, oh, don't forget to pick up the milk this afternoon. And you're, and you're also feeling like you're still a little pissed off at your girlfriend or your wife or your boyfriend. Um you know, there's a kind of busyness in the mind. And then at some point for some people, and I think meditation helps this, that busyness just sort of shuts down. And when I say shuts down, I don't mean you stop thinking entirely, but the background uh, constant monkey mind, the constant churning of the mind just stops. Um, and at, when that happens, you have a sense that what you are inside is... Um, well, something different than it used to be. Um, I think, uh, you know, Hinduism talks about this as you discover Atman. And Atman means, uh, I often translate it as consciousness in itself. So that you have uh, this sense of what you are has shifted. The, the busyness of the mind has sort of fallen away. And the sense of your being uh, Atman, your being your own consciousness becomes more palpable at that time. And I think what happens is that the physiology somehow generates this new state. But it's not a state of perfection. It's rather just a difference in how you see yourself. You know, you can see yourself. I, I used to see, before this happened to me, I used to see myself as well, a, a kind of, I had a vague sense of I was here someplace in the middle in my upper chest area that I was behind my eyes or and that my name was Robert and that I was I was, um, you know, this person with this background, etc. And then after this shift, I had a sense that what I was was this silence inside. Um, and that silence has been with me now for, you know, some 40 years or so. Um, and it's just become the background of my life but it didn't make me perfect it didn't make me able to leap tall buildings it didn't make me able to um uh, have no emotional response to things it didn't make me moral it didn't make me uh just this sort of wild-eyed you know wonderful guy i was from the outside i probably looked like exactly the same guy maybe a little calmer but the same kind of guy and i think that when i see the, the clearest definition I've seen of that is, is from Shankara, an 8th century uh, Hindu figure. Uh, and, and he said, it's like riding in a carriage. And before you thought you were, you were the carriage, you thought you were, you know, like going along, living your life. And after this shift, you realize that you're in the middle riding in a carriage. You're not the carriage, that you're, as it were, being carried by the carriage, by your body. And so you have a sense of who you are inside. It's not quite the same stuff as who you are in your physiology, who you are in your body, who you are in your history. Um, and that shift is significant, but it's not, it's not a transformation into being this, this sort of super guy. It's not a transformation. You know, your hair is not on fire, um, and, and you don't become this perfect guy. And I think that that thought that enlightened people uh, are perfect people led to so many misuses of the term, led to so many gurus that have been seducing their their followers, so many uh, people that are claiming to be enlightened, screwing up, you know, messing around with the money and 
And I think that enlightenment doesn't mean a perfect person. Enlightenment, enlightenment um, means that you now recognize what you are, which is different than what you used to be or what you used to think of yourself as. Um, and so in that sense, in that sense, according to my understanding of enlightenment, and I can tell you, you know, like I can read all kinds of, I can read from all kinds of different traditions that I, I think I've got the notion of enlightenment correctly. Um, in the sense that I've just defined enlightenment, yes, I and many other people have gone through such a shift, but it hasn't made me perfect. It hasn't made me happy. I've still struggled with anxiety sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, I want to say, yes, that is enlightenment. And that shift happened to me back in 1972. So it's been quite a while. Um, and then since that time, I can also say without bragging because it's nothing nothing to brag about but the sense of silence that i came to see myself in 1972 has very slowly expanded to take up more and more of my body over the decades uh, until it became so big that it was like well outside my body like an aura and then some years after that i began to realize that that sense of silence that was me uh, i also uh, became able to sense in the world around me, like see it in the trees and see it in the, see it in the hills around me or see it in the sky. Uh, and so that that sense of silence has slowly, very slowly expanded more and more to take up more and more of the world as I know it and more and more of my life. So, yeah, I can say I'm enlightened, uh, and I'm, I, but I can also say that enlightenment uh, ain't what it's cracked up to be. <laughs> So when you're talking about this, I'm hearing two things. One thing, I like the description that you're, you're sharing of this silence because it does sound deeply human and uh, deeply realistic, I think, as a prospect for many practitioners. And yet part of me is still like, well, let's not use that word enlightenment because it just creates so many problems. And I think it would be interesting for a range of different teachers from different traditions to maybe get together and have almost a brainstorming session and think about other nice phrases or single words that might that might capture it because i think sometimes you know the words in themselves they do end up becoming traps yeah again i I think you described it in a way that's that's not just human i mean it seems to be a a quality of consciousness of being in the world it's part of our embodiedness and that's the way that i like very much to talk about and think about spiritual practice because i think it acts as a nice counter for the sort of uh, spiritual materialism disassociation and many of the problems that come along for meditators you know often don't get proper instruction and so forth yeah i can add along along that line matthew i can add um that when this thing first happened to me back in 1972 um I it was so disconcerting. It was so different than what I was anticipating that I genuinely did not recognize it as enlightenment for some years. It took me a lot of reading and a lot of sort of scratching my head to try to figure out what had happened to me. But I would say that the first um, description I would have of what had happened to me was that it was it was spiritually dual or better still existentially dual. In the sense that, uh, you know, I could still name myself as Robert Foreman. I still knew that this is my body and I was 5'10 and I weighed blah, blah, blah. And, and I, you know, have such and such a background. I, I knew all that. And that was very much who I was. And when I interacted, people knew me as, you know, Robert or Bob or Bobby, whatever they knew me as. Um, but then on the inside, I was a different kind of thing. 
I was this silent, unaffected uh, consciousness. And it was very different than who I was on the outside. And, and I knew both of them, and I could sort of step into one or the other, and I didn't know how to step into both at the same time. In other words, I, I couldn't, when this thing first started happening, I, I was literally, um, if you've read my book, you know that, that when this happened, it took about a month for it to sort of finally come on. And it, it started from, uh, it, it came in the back of my neck and it started on the left side. Um, and it was like a series of tubes got quiet inside the back of my head. And um, in the beginning, uh, when this first started happening, I would, sometimes I put myself in the silence, which was on the left. And then I'd go out of putting myself in the silence and sort of kind of internally go on the right and be able to look over at this silent stuff and realize it was on the left. And, and I couldn't be in both at the same time. I would either put myself in the silence or I put myself outside of the silence uh, in my body. And that duel uh, was very much a characteristic of this um, right along in the beginning. In other words, once this had completely shifted over, um, I could either be conscious of the silence or I could be in my life. And so there was a kind of dualistic quality to the whole thing uh, for many, many years. Um, and then that dualism only faded in the early 1990s. Uh, so that was what? That was 20 years later. 20 years later, that dualism, when I began to realize that the silence that was in me, I could perceive in the trees and in the hills around me. Um, I, it was only then that I began to realize that, oh, what was dualistic has become kind of unitive, as it were. So I think, you know, that that's an that's a more accurate way to talk about this, that to talk about uh, awareness or enlightenment or awakening sounds like you've become a super guy. And and I think if we talk about the existential dualism, that feels accurate, but it makes a lousy sound bite. Um, but that that was what that was what came in the beginning. And I think. I think the sense of, you know, like a human being riding in a carriage or um, uh, nirvana and samsara. I mean, it's interesting to me that Buddhism talks about uh, nirvana and samsara, or they talk about prajna, uh, but also nirvana. Um, in other words, there's a kind of dualism that runs through Buddhism, too, in the beginning. You, you discover wisdom, you discover prajna, and yet you're your um your sense of being in the body samsara being in the body and nirvana you know in the beginning buddhism in the beginning of the transformation i think buddhism talks about it that way as well so i think this dualism uh, was part is part of many people's transformation i don't know about all i'm not confident enough to say this is the only way that it comes on i think it probably is fairly typical um that when people have these transformations, they, they they have this kind of dualistic thing in the beginning, and then and then it becomes a little more unitive over time. I've had a very unusual story though, because you know this this happened to me just um, a little over two years after I started meditation, this transformation thing, and that's unusual. And the way it happened to me, I've never heard of anybody having another story quite like mine. Um, so. Um, Yet I think that what happened to me was, was what the traditions are talking about. Mm -hmm. 
So why don't we take this as a bridge to another topic that I wanted to talk about, which which I think might be an interesting addition to the description you made before of this experience of silence. Um, this was a while back, but you wrote a book about the problem of pure consciousness. And it, I, th- I think it's quite interesting to think about that for a moment in terms of, are you describing something like pure consciousness? Does, does that sit well with you still as a description of the silence as you described it? And and what would be the connection between that and this, this sort of broader idea of mystical experience and mysticism? Uh, mysticism is one of these terms that sort of everybody uses to describe whatever the hell they want. Um, for me, the way I understand, well, first of all, there's uh, the, the, in the field of mysticism studies, it's it's long been thought that there's two different kinds of mystical experience. Uh, uh, Walter Stace uh, said this, and he was the first one to say it, but I think this is quite common now, um, that we can talk about it uh, in technical terms, apophatic and cataphatic mysticism. And what that really means is mysticism with content or mysticism without content. Um, Apophatic uh, and cataphatic. Cataphatic is when you you know, like uh, the person that's lying in their deathbed and they say, I see grandma. That's a cataphatic experience. There's something that has sensory, seeming sensory content. Or the person that is in church and they say, I see Christ. Or, or you know, I, uh, the Buddhist to say, I, the Buddha came to me at night. That, those are cataphatic experiences. Those are with content. Uh, whereas I think uh, a pure consciousness event or the kind of experience that I'm describing, and we'll get to that in a minute, um, those are called apophatic, and that's without content, without sensory content. Um, and I think it's fair to talk about mysticism in both these terms, but it's, but it's not fair to, to confuse them in terms of, you know, anybody that has a mystical experience must be very woo-woo and having, you know, like having visions, and that is not the case. And I think that that, that there's a lot of confusion that's come from that. Okay, that's that's my academic hat. I will now take my academic hat off and. Uh, talk about how this stuff pans out. You said, um, you know, uh, do I still think of uh, what happened to me in terms of pure consciousness? Uh, yeah, uh, pure consciousness, the way I write about it, is a consciousness uh, that has no linguistic content. It's, In other words, you're not thinking anything during the event, during the moment that you're having that experience. And, and people in meditation... I believe it happens to Buddhists. I know it happens to TMers. Uh, I know it happens sometimes in centering prayer because I, you know, I've had more experience with those things. Um, sometimes people's minds get completely quiet. All the thoughts stop. Well, if you think about what I've described as finding this silence or having this silence establish itself in our bodies, uh, the way it did for me in 1972, uh, there's no, there's no volition. In, in that silence. There's no linguistic content in that silence. Rather, when we, um, you know, have an experience of enlightenment or this, this uh, um, Brahman or Buddha mind establishes itself in us, it's not something we think, uh, we cause by thinking. It's not something that thinking touches. When I think, I think for consciousness or consciousness is, is having the thought out there and consciousness is aware of it. What happens, or what happened to me in 1972, and what happens to people when these experiences come on, is that that sense of your own consciousness becomes palpable, uh, but it doesn't, it, it, it's not something that the thoughts are in. 
I can't think this stuff. I, and, and the part of my life that is silent, I can't make that do anything. I can't make it a wiggle a finger. I can't make it go up or down. It just is what it is. And so in that sense, it's quite pure and very different than my thinking mind. I mean, God knows, you know, I have a PhD. I can think a lot and I have thought a lot. And none of that thinking stuff touches this sense of wide openness. So, for example, if if as I'm talking to you or if I was reading a book, you know, as I'm talking to you, there's all kinds of words floating back and forth between the two of us. But the sense of silence is, as it were, behind the words or uh, absorbing the words or holding the words, but is not the words. And in that sense, I want to say it's pure. Now, what what uh, the academic uh, argument I was in the middle of, uh, you know, a fellow named Stephen Katz said that it's your expectations and your language that causes you to have mystical experiences. And I want to say that, no, it's something much deeper in mysticism. It's not your language. It's not your trying. It's not your attempting to hold on to this stuff that makes it what it is. Rather, there is this human capacity. And the human capacity to be silent is a different capacity than the human capacity to talk or wiggle your fingers. So in that sense, yes, I want to say that the arguments that I made about pure consciousness back in that book in 1990, that was a 1990 book, uh, I think the arguments hold true. And they hold true of uh, the silent part of the enlightened person's uh, consciousness. It's a harder argument to make. Um, uh, I have made it, but it's a harder argument to make as to why we think that the silence that comes on is is none other than the silence that is in pure consciousness. But yes, I think that is what's happened. And in the beginning of this conversation between you and I, we talked about there are capacities that human beings have that we that many of us don't know or certainly don't recognize. Uh, early in our life story. And I think the capacity to be aware of consciousness in a palpable sense is one of those capacities and, and possibly one of the more important ones. Because to be aware that I am a conscious being is itself a very unusual gift to us, but it is, but it is a gift to us. And in that sense, yeah, I want to say this is this is a capacity that that is um, is is quite clearly connected to the capacity to be awake without content. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, in a sense, you've kind of answered a side question I have here. Um, I like to play the devil's advocate with myself with these things. So sometimes I'll do that with a guest. But an argument against this position that I've heard from a couple of friends of mine who. Uh, have dabbled in meditation practices, but tend to lean more towards, let's say, a, a critical and intellectual interpretation of all this. They would ask a question like, well, you know, what's the difference between what's being described there and the consciousness of a baby or an animal? They have non-linguistic consciousness. But perhaps you already gave a bit of the answer, which is to be aware of the process and to be aware that it's actually taking place, whereas I would imagine, although I don't know, of course, the baby and an animal wouldn't have that going on. And at some level, I'm I'm not sure I, I do want to distinguish uh, the consciousness of you know. There's a famous koan, a Zen Buddhist koan. It's, it's does a dog have uh, in in our terms? Does a dog have pure consciousness? They would talk about can a dog have nirvana? Does a dog have 
have a person. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the answer is mu, which is the Japanese word for, I think, as best I understand it, it's the Japanese words for, uh, for roughly for uh, come see, come saw, yes and no kind of thing. Um, and and um, if the human being is connected to this vast energy, and if consciousness uh, that, that comes in enlightenment is connected to this vast energy, which I'm pretty sure does, um, is a dog connected to this same vast energy? I want to say so. But the difference between what the person that's gained enlightenment and the dog is that, as you say, the person that's gained enlightenment knew what it was to not be enlightened. In other words, has seen what it is to be conscious and be aware of that consciousness. So, yeah, I think that that, that, is, a, that is a key difference. But I, my sense of it is that, that this consciousness that we have access to and the consciousness that can sort of establish itself in, in your own body... I think is in many ways connected to this um, energetic reality, this 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 vast uh, energetic field that quantum physics talks about, um, uh, or something parallel to that. And so I think that if I have it, if I'm a product of this energetic field, um, then I would assume that the dog is a product of the energetic field and the baby is the product of such a field. Or the way some people want to talk about this, and I think it's a plausible way, um, is to talk about uh, the world as having a certain kind of uh, consciousness. The, the, the consciousness is everywhere, some people want to say. Um, and, and I want to say, perhaps so. I mean, it's, it's not something I can identify, and I have no way how I would know this. But, but my sense of it is that we are connected in some way. We are, we're connected, and it is conscious for people that have gone through this change. And often, you know, many, many people have told me, yes, I was meditating, and I had this sense of being connected to everything, and it was an amazing experience, and it lasted for 30 seconds, and, and wow, I've been trying to get back there ever since. And so I think a lot of people have had these sort of moments of this, and I think a lot of people um, would accept that they're, that they're connected in some way. What we don't know is we don't know how it might happen or exactly what it is. And this is all rather vague to us, just as thinkers. It's all rather vague to us. Uh, but I think a lot of us have this sense that we're connected in certain ways. So is the dog connected to this? I do think so. But I don't know how. You know, I don't, I don't know how we can say it for sure. But I do want to say I'm connected to something that I can sort of sense. And it does look to me, you know, I told you earlier in the conversation that that at some point I began to realize that what is me is the same stuff as what is in the tree. That silence at my, you know, in my belly is the same silence as I look out there and see that tree over there. Um, I think it's the same stuff. So I would also sense that there's that same stuff at the core of a dog and the core of a baby. So, yeah, I want to say that they're connected. But, yes, um, they're, they're different in the sense that, I was aware that I wasn't conscious of my own consciousness and that I became conscious of my own consciousness. So in that sense, yeah, I think that's, I think what you're pointing to is, is a good distinction. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the more interesting areas of these types of spiritual practices that I think often gets sort of left aside or is universalized and therefore not 
elaborated more fully is this sort of panpsychic idea which you were talking about which, where consciousness is in literally everything and it's a funny one because um, some people are comfortable talking about these things others are not some people dismiss them some people love them so much that it's sort of the central topic of their lives I'm glad you've men mentioned being agnostic about some of this uh, at least twice because that's how I feel you know I'm, I'm extremely open-minded but I also like to bring my critical faculties to thinking about these practices because a lot of the people I work with in my coaching practice, they have a more intellectual background and they just won't accept. They won't accept certain types of discourse from me. And I, I like that. It challenges me to, to think more in a creative manner about what's going on. I like Buddhism very much. And I think it has value as, as a sort of global system that can contribute to these types of conversations is they would say, yeah, that's all great. And, you know, does it matter or does it not? What matters actually is how we relate to the suffering that takes place in you or I or the dog. And, you know, that's that's what we should be working with. And, you know, I'm not saying that's the best thing. I'm just saying I think that's a nice antidote sometimes to some of the more speculative conversations around, you know, what's actually taking place if somebody's going through this this radical change. Because I would agree with you. I think it does happen and it happens more often than we might know. And different people find ways of thinking about it and communicating it and sharing it. And, and other people don't. You know, some people do it strictly within a religious or spiritual tradition and some people do it outside. And I think these kinds of conversations become interesting because even though I'd agree with you, there is something that we might define as pure consciousness that can be known and can be, can be accessible as a sort of everyday quality of consciousness. I think that, um, you know, I think it's interesting to bring that into relationship with, with wider discussions about what is going on, because perhaps some people will find language within uh, quantum physics. And I think, you know, scientists will talk about whether that's right or wrong. And it's all interesting. And some philosophers will talk about it, too. And some will be dismissive and others will say, well, actually, no, there's, there's something we could talk about, even though there's a characteristic to it that we might call silence. I also think that, that some people tend to live their lives externally and, and other people tend to live their lives more internally. And what I mean by that is that uh, we all know people that, um, you know, they're, they're preoccupied with what they see around them. I have a very dear friend um, who is an incredibly efficient guy and, and he spends his time uh, tinkering with his car and fixing up the the trellis outside his backyard and, and, you know, uh, making sure the plumbing works. And, and he's, he's very happy doing that. He, but but he, he tends to think in terms of external objects. It's what he sees, it's what he knows. And Frank, I gave him my book and, and he thought it was very well written, but had no idea what I was talking about. Whereas other people, and I think you'd be in this boat, unless I miss my guess, it's that some people have a tendency to be more aware of their own internal life. Psychologists are very much in this in this boat. Uh, people that teach spirituality are very much in this boat. So some of us live our lives more internally, and others live our lives more externally. And I find that people that want to make that more intellectual argument that you said that sometimes you have to go there with your clients, as do I. Um, I think that that uh, it, that it's it's more natural for some people to talk about things in a kind of an exterior and external way or an intellectual way. And so I think that, that I just wanted to add that to your rather nice um, 
you know, description of, of, of how we deal with this stuff and how different people take this on. There's also, there's also a wonderful, um, a woman named Elaine Aaron who wrote, um, who's written quite a number of books and there's been some movies about this, um, called highly sensitive people. Have you ever heard this term? Highly HSPs, highly sensitive people. Um, well, I know what that means, but I haven't heard it used in any sort of specific or specialized way. She and her husband um, are statisticians, among other things, and they've really done some careful research in, in people that um, are what she calls highly sensitive people. And I think that that's another way to think about this, that some people are almost uh, sometimes oversensitive, highly, you know, really respond strongly emotionally to things and and have uh, it's almost like their senses are more lively than other people's. And I think that that also plays into this, how we sort of regard this, whether this seems like poppycock or whether it seems like, yeah, I definitely get what this guy's talking about. So I think I think these different sort of uh, stances, how the nervous system works, I think that's also part of this. Okay, that's enough of that. Now you would you would ask about the word forgetting if you want to go there. Yeah, so it's a word you've used. Um, I'm not sure I understand completely where you're going with that term. So perhaps how does it connect to what we've talked about so far, and is it something that you you're still exploring, or is part of the characteristic of how you present your ideas? Oh, it's it's a, it's a wonderful language word. Uh, I originally I originally got it from uh, uh, Meister Eckhart, about whom I wrote a book many years ago, um, and he talks about. Um, I wouldn't need to do it in German. Um, he talks about the fact that most of us have uh, psychological attachments. Like, um, I'm, I'm really attached to the fact that I'm rich. That's a very common one. Or I'm very attached to the fact that I'm a very good basketball player. That's another kind of common one that some people are really attached to think of themselves as, as um, you know, really good athletes. Uh, Donald Trump seems to have been attached to his to the idea that he was, you know, he's the sort of biggest and bestest and richest and you know, so that those are internal attachments. These are the way people think about themselves and you become ego identified with certain kinds of things. So you really care that you're rich or you really care that you're good looking or you really care that you're married to so-and-so. These are how we define ourselves. Um, and to have a self-definition like that and then to let it go, um, to forget it in the sense of, I no longer identify myself psychologically as such and so. Let's think about let's think about somebody that, that is attached to being wealthy, um, financially wealthy. <clears throat> that you can be uh, you, you can be wealthy and really care. Meister Eckhart talks about giving a jot. You know, can you really care? Do you really care about being wealthy? That's you sort of think about it. You hold it. You you spend your time on that. Um, that's one way to live your life. And then you could also be wealthy, but have let go internally of the attachment to the thought that you are a rich guy. You can still have the same amount of money, but you can be less involved with it. And in, the, in that sense, you have let go of the hold of, of that which you have defined yourself, of that which you used to define yourself. In that sense, you're forgetting. It's not like you're becoming stupid. It's not like you're, you're, you know, you can't think of anybody's name, which happens as you get older. Rather, it's rather that you, you become less, um, you cling. The Buddhist term for that is trishna. You cling to your attachment. You cling to your self-definition less. And in that sense, you forget. 
Um, and Meister Eckhart talks about this, Buddhism talks about this in the skandhas, Hinduism talks about this. It runs throughout the world's spiritual traditions as best I can see it. Um, and I think it's a wonderful process because what gets you? You know, it's, it's what, what, what makes us unhappy? The primary thing, as I understand it, that makes us unhappy is that, that we, um, we have a picture of how life is supposed to go. And then life doesn't meet it. And then you become really miserable. So you're attached to your picture of how life is supposed to be. And when life doesn't meet your picture, when somebody says you're not rich or when you realize you're not rich or, you know, you realize you're not such a good athlete after all, then you become all depressed, you know, or if you define yourself as the best swimmer, um, you know, like what's his name, Michael Phelps, you define yourself as the best swimmer and then you realize you can no longer beat everybody. It's like, who am I? You've, you've had to let it go. And that's really hard. But if you can come to terms with the change in your circumstance, or you come to terms with with the the change, you you allow a change in your self definition, you forget your old self definition, then you become free of what it was that was starting to bother you. You become free of your own uh, attachments. You become free of that which has caught you. And in that sense, it's a beautiful process. And I think it does lead into the kind of stuff we've been talking about. It definitely leads to uh, if you're if you're very preoccupied with something and then you can really just let go then you can find that lo and behold what was really bugging you what was really on your mind is no longer on your mind because you don't have this picture of how life is supposed to be or you don't have this picture of who you are and in that sense you've let it go and that's that I think is what leads towards a certain kind of wisdom in the middle of all this yes yeah, it makes me think, well, obviously, Meister Eckhart is a famous, almost archetypal figure within the tradition of mysticism, and that certainly resonates within that. Um, the history of your writing is interesting. Um, you know, you talked earlier about taking off one hat and putting it on the other. Yeah, your academic career, I mean, it, it seems to me that, if I'm reading it correctly, you've kind of navigated those hats right from the start. I mean, all of your books take a either a full or a partial academic approach to thinking about some of the things we're talking about, which is one of the reasons that I was interested in talking to you. I wonder, what's your position now? Obviously, you're, you're, you're still counseling, you're offering spiritual uh, counseling to folks that come to you. Do you, still, do you still bring in your, let's say, your critical skills, your academic thinking skills to thinking about some of these questions, or do you feel like you've kind of done enough? What a good question. Um... First of all, you, you, you never let your mind go. I mean, it, it doesn't go away. Uh, you know, what academics did was it gave me a language for this stuff. It gave me, geez, you know, I've written so many books on different religious traditions that, you know, that I certainly can, you know, if I, if I encounter a Buddhist or a Muslim, I can certainly talk to them in their language. So it gives me a certain, a certain kind of facility with different religions. I taught comparative religions for 20 years. So that's, that's where that background comes from. But really what you're asking is, uh, you know, more deeply than that is, you know, it's like, does it play into what I do? And again, I don't think this stuff goes away, but what I'm, a, what I'm trying to do now, um, first of all, in a very part-time way, I'm a hospital chaplain. Um, and uh, it's not something I advertise, but it's something I very much enjoy doing. And so that what I really love at this point is making a kind of emotional contact with people. And people in hospitals are, you know, they're scared. And they're, they're, a lot of them are really ready to talk about their lives and they're, you know, because they think they might be dying. Um, 
And, and so I find that incredibly meaningful is just to be able to talk to people. I think that my academic life um, has not played into that kind of work uh, quite as much as my spiritual life. Because what I got, and what I continue to have in connection with spirituality in my mystical life is, is a sense of what it is to be true and real. A sense of what it is to be undefended and to be able to talk to people in a way that they really need to talk. And, and in my counseling, I think that also is something that I use. So I, I don't tend to talk. I certainly don't tend to bring in some of the arguments about pure consciousness that took me 10 years to develop. Um, but I certainly do bring in my, you know, the history of knowledge of religions. But mostly what I'm after, um, I'm after making emotional contact with, with my clients and emotional contact with people that are uh, hurting in the hospital. And I think, frankly, it's it's uh, now here we're going to go someplace that, uh, that I'm not sure we were planning to. But um, I think that what I found and I think is true of a lot of people is that the practice of meditation is a solitary practice, is something that you do with your eyes closed or half open um, and something that you can do in your own you know, sitting on the zafu on your own living room floor, or you, you go into a zendo, and there might be other people around you, but you're not really interacting. And I think that, that I think this is a loss of, for Buddhism, and I know it's a loss for TM, um, that I think that what I longed for, um, despite my many years of meditation practice, was a deeper and more real contact with my fellow human beings. And I think that that's, that I think is a, a lacuna in, in Eastern practices that, that, and it kind of comes out of their society. I, I don't know Japanese society quite as well, but uh, I know that in Hindu, in Hindu society, in Indian society, there is a kind of ish to sadhana, a kind of sh, uh, chosen path. We all choose our own path. It's not interactive. It's, it's not um, it's not um, mutual. You're not developing your life in conjunction with other people uh, in, in an explicit way. It happens, but it's not explicit in the same way that it might be in the West. And I, I know that I've longed for that kind of personal, emotional um, connection, the kind of connection that you feel like, oh, that's making real contact with somebody. And, and I, I think that that's where I'm... That's where my life has gone in the last oh, 10 years, 15 years, that I've been eager to make that kind of heart-to-heart -heart connection with people. And I think that my spiritual practice has helped that, uh, the sense of being able to be really present to something has allowed me to be present to other people in an indirect way. Um, and, and it's out of this work that my spiritual uh, counseling practice has developed because you know, people have heard that I, I seem to be able to to help people find themselves uh, and to make connection with themselves and with one another. So uh, I think that that's really uh, where I want to see these practices go more, that I'd like to see more of that. And I'd like to see more of it in my own life. Um, and, and somehow I think that that it's it's a lacuna in Buddhism as well as in TM. 
Yeah, and I think it's reflective of um, a general weakness in in Western spirituality and the adoption of these practices is is that people have tended to uh, carry on with them in a very individualistic way. And I I think as well, um, you know, I don't want to beat on America, but I think that could be one of the sort of big consequences of the Americanization of spiritual practice in general, which I think is is becoming more aware. I don't think it's just you. I think many people are having similar thoughts, especially long-term practitioners. And um, I, I, I certainly know a couple of people personally who are experimenting with different types of meditation practice done in a couple or a very small group. I know that if you if you go beyond a certain number, it can be quite difficult to, let's say, cultivate that kind of intimacy within which people can truly open up and feel safe doing so and perhaps discover some sort of resonance with each other, you know? Arthur Dykeman, the psychologist, used to say that anything above 13 was a mob. <laughs> you, know, right. you, can get, you can get intimate with a group of 13 or less, but I think, you know, 8 or 10 probably is the biggest size for a group that can really work. Uh, tea groups uh, back in the uh, early 80s and late 70s were attempting to find that kind of intimacy. They, they I think, many, many times did, but it was it had its own kind of dangers. And I, I agree that there are other people that are looking for this, and this is certainly what I'm looking for. Uh, and and to some extent, I'm, I'm always I'm always on the hunt for people that I can make real contact with, and so in the hospitals, I think that's something that we we definitely do as a chaplain as chaplains. But I also think that uh, you know bringing spiritual teachers together in this way, I think it's just uh, I think it's it's answering a a longing that many practitioners have. I mean, when you think about spiritual practice. You know, it's it is. I want to say solipsistic almost. Uh, there's something very personal but private about doing it, and I think that, that that's that's important. You know, that we that we develop our own life and where we've been, as it were, screwed up and 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 attached and all stuck. You know, it's important to let go of that stuff, and that's a definitely important path, piece of the path. But I also think it's not the only piece of the path. That once you have resolve some of your worst neuroses then I think that um, that I think that finding one another in a deep and real way is is an important chunk of it so I want to change I want to change Freud a little bit Freud said that that um, you know the healthy person was able to to love and to work um, and I want to add that the healthy person is able to love which is to make contact with other people, to work and be productive in the world, but also to know themselves. And I think that all three of those enter into the enter into the the sense that we need to be whole. Uh, so for me, knowing myself and knowing uh, my own consciousness has been a huge piece of my path. But then the the rest of my path has been okay. Now, if you get your own consciousness, you know, now what? And so let's let's find one another and let's let's be able to do some work and let's. Let's be productive in the world. So, yeah, I want to say that it's, you know, for me, the, the meditation practice is, has been a good piece, but not, it can't, for me, and now can't be the only piece. I've got to be able to make Yeah, I think if we, we think about sort of generational challenges and changes, I think certainly for the younger generations, there's the desire, and I think you see that in the sort of political discussions going on, there's a desire not just to let's say, meet in, in smaller groups where practice can be taken place and where, you know, there can be authentic connection. But I think it's also looking at how there are other wider national, global, international forces at play which also resonate within us and, you know, lead to dysfunction, ignorance and suffering. Perhaps a more mature Western spiritual practice would 
would find a more hands-on approach to dealing with some of that. And and one person um, who I did want to mention before we, we run out of time here is somebody who thinks, I think, along those lines, who thinks about development taking place horizontally as well as on different lines. And that's a person who you've worked with, which is Ken Wilbur. Do you think much of, of Ken's work? How involved were you with his cognitive models and so forth? Yeah, Ken's brilliant. There's just no other word for it. Um, he is, uh, he, you know, he reads Lickety Split um, and he remembers what he reads, which is just a phenomenal skill. Uh, and he is, is, is a very, very powerful syncretistic thinker. He brings together, you know, avenues from here, there and, and elsewhere. Um, and I was, uh, I was reasonably well involved with him for, oh, probably about five years, I think. I was one of the beginners. I was one of the people on the founding of the uh, Integral Institute, and I very much like working with him. He was very helpful to me at certain points in my own thinking. Um, so I have a lot of respect for him. Um, I think that he's been uh, very helpful to a lot of people, and I, and I have a lot of respect for that. I, where I struggle, uh, and still to some extent struggle with him, is he's got a wonderful model, a wonderful way to think about um, the connections between things. That is to say, um, for example, if you think about his chart of the four internal, external, I and thou, or I and multiple, um, uh, you know, it's like he can say, well, this is over here in this upper right, this is over here in the upper left, but it's like exactly what's the connections between those areas um, is, is where I always was, I, I was often kind of left scratching my head saying, yeah, you see this, but what's the relationship between for example, what I was talking about before, but if you think about consciousness as a vast field and the quantum vacuum field over there, which is external, um, how do you connect those two dots? And so I've spent my life trying to connect some of the dots that he, he, he drew on a piece of paper. Um, and I think, that he, I think that what he's done is just marvelous. And I, I have all the respect in the world for the guy. Um, and and um, yeah, so I think he's been terrific for a lot of folks yeah okay great now before we do run out of time I, I want to finish up by asking you about any projects you're currently working on enlightenment ain't what it's cracked up to be i believe was written back in 2010 2011 is that right uh, it was written in 2010 it was published in 11 yes um i'm actually i actually just submitted an article i'm quite fascinated um by two general things, and and these two dots I think are connected. One is um, that I've talking about how spiritual practice can be done in a group. Um, I've been working on a book now for a couple of years about what it is to develop in a group, like a church or a bowling group or a. You know, the, one of my one of the people that I like is involved in an archery club. It's like, how does how do people really move their lives forward with others? This is not so much about the question of intimacy, which is interesting and about which I've written, but um, it's really a question of what is it to develop in a group? And I think part of it is connected with this word forgetting that you were that we were talking about before. That is. Can I really challenge myself to relinquish my own ego and allow the, the, the group process or the group decisions or the group um, rhythm to really, uh, to really run 
not run me, but to allow myself to really relax into it. For example, if you go to a church and you see that you've got a lot of people there who are using um, a similar sort of um, practice, like um, uh, singing a song together. What is that doing? For, if I sing a song with other people, to some extent, I'm allowing my own need to write the song, to sing the song in my way. I'm, I'm putting that aside and allowing myself to be with others. And, and I'm quite eager to see society move more into this kind of group uh, evolution process than only uh, solitary evolution. So that, that is definitely something that I'm working on. Now that I want to connect with some research that I've been doing, and I frankly, I just submitted an article to the Journal of Consciousness Studies about this. Uh, there's a new field um, of neurophysiology called um, social neurophysiology, or uh, for short, hyperscanning. And the way it works is with stronger computers, people have realized that they can be looking at the EEG patterns of your brain and my brain at the same time, at the same time, and can look at what goes on when we have a good conversation, as you and I have, or can look at people that are playing guitar together, like playing a duet, or can look at people that are playing a game like Jenga or kissing. Um, and what they what they're discovering, and there's a there's an outfit in Germany, the Max Planck Institute, that's done some amazing work on this. Um, what they're discovering is that that the two brains start to function as if one brain, that you see more and more coherence. The peaks and troughs of their EEG readings start to match one another in a way that typically we don't. In other words, the two brains are actually communicating in some way. Then we also see through this hyperscanning stuff that um, sometimes people's brains are, uh, are are in alignment with one another, even though the, even though there's no crosstalk between the two. Uh, for example, when one identical twin goes into an alpha state, the other identical twin, two thousand miles away, goes into an alpha state. Um, when two people are just when one person walks into a room and they see somebody that they know and love on the other side of the room and they simply make eye contact their two brains start to function together. So uh, we're starting to see that people actually do um, have a deeper kind of communication than, uh, than we've been aware of. And I think that uh, that, that article says, uh, the article I just submitted says that, that this is pointing out something about the nature of human consciousness that I find incredibly exciting. So that I'm seeing a development that's happening in a group, but I'm also seeing uh, over here, like in a church or in a bowling group, but I'm also seeing that over here, people are actually moving one another's life together. So uh, the work that I'm doing right now is about uh, uh, learning how and helping the process of developing uh, in tandem or quadro, you know, or, or, or groups of four or 10 or whatnot. There's a wonderful study by a fellow named Mueller, um, of a uh, people singing in a choir, you can take, I think he was looking at 12 people at the same time. Uh, so people singing together start to have brains that function uh, in alignment with one another. So uh, I'm telling you, Matthew, uh, this stuff is so exciting to me. I'm really thrilled about it all. And and I'm, I, I can't write fast enough. You know, it's like I'm, I'm just too excited about all this. So that's where I'm, that's where I'm doing work right now. It's and and, and I'm, I'm loving this work. And I'm also finding it's it's personally incredibly helpful, you know, to 
to go to a church sometimes or to be in groups sometimes, I, I find I, I find myself getting incredibly moved by the by the the, the sense of, of social unity is too strong of a word, but the social cohesion that I'm feeling in these things. So I, I think this is it might be a, it might be an answer to the question that we were talking about before of the of the uh, of the solipsism of the of the personal meditation. I, I think that there might be something here for us. Um, so I'm very excited about this work, but that's more than you wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, thank you, um, Robert, for coming on and uh, sharing uh, your time with us. It's been good to talk. Yes, it has. Okay. Uh, but before we sign off, I have one more thing to say. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you for doing this work. I know how much it takes to do the kind of work that you're doing. I, I know that you, you know, you probably enjoy doing conversations like this, and I certainly do. But I, I know how hard it is to make one of these things go week after week after week. And and I want to thank you on behalf of your listeners and on on behalf of me for doing this kind of work. It's it's the more intelligent, thoughtful openness that we can have to our spiritual lives and to life in general. Uh, the better off we all are. So thank you for doing the work that you do. Thank you. You're, uh, you're most welcome, and uh, I appreciate that. Hey, boo. Now here you are again. And words be said, but ain't nobody talking. You? <laughs> well, you know you're on my mind. And ain't nothing wrong with knowing what you want. Just free, Miss Evie. Yeah.